Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dr. Chris Smith is there for us, virologist, Cambridge, UK. Morena, Chris. Hello, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, what has happened to the Oxford trials of the COVID-19 vaccine, please? Yeah, this is the agent that goes by its pharmaceutical name, AZD1222. That's the designated drug name for the Chadox vaccine. And this has come out of the uh, Jenner Institute at the, at the University of Oxford. Sarah Gilbert is the lead on this project. It is basically, for those who are not familiar with this vaccine space, this is a virus. It is a chimpanzee adenovirus, which causes symptoms of the common cold. And it's been modified so that the virus cannot grow in our cells, but it can infect them. So it's a bit like a Trojan horse that will wheel into the city, but then the wheels fall off, so it can't be wheeled out again. But what it contains inside that Trojan horse are some gene segments that express the outer coat of the coronavirus. So once this virus does what viruses do very well and it penetrates a cell when you inject it or a group of cells, it delivers this genetic payload that then transforms the cells into expressing and therefore educating the immune system about the appearance of this new coronavirus. And because it does it in the context of a virus, it triggers all of the usual alarm signals that go off when a virus penetrates a cell, which gets the immune system really interested. And it makes, as we now know, thanks to research published midway through July, the full spectrum, the full constellation of an immune response. You get antibodies being made. You also make these very special white blood cells called CD8 cytotoxic T cells, which are very important for killing off virally infected cells. This virus, or this construct, was initially elaborated to handle Ebola. And what the team in Oxford have done is to take out the bits that were making it look like Ebola and substitute bits that made it look like coronavirus. So they were starting from a position of strength because they knew that this could make people safely immune to Ebola. It's now in phase three trials, which means big trials on big groups of people, and it's running up against a control group. The control group are, are people who've had a vaccine. They don't know what's in that vaccine, but actually it's a meningitis vaccine that they're using as the control versus people getting this new um AZD1222 agent. This was going swimmingly. It's being trialled in the UK and because of low levels of virus circulation in the UK, the trial was extended also to Brazil, where there's a higher prevalence, and South Africa, in order to get enough data to be statistically reassured that it's doing what we think it is. Then this week comes... having enough people having having enough people involved in the trial? Yes, absolutely. But critically, in order to yeah. demonstrate efficacy, in other words, that this thing works, what you need to see is an excess of infections occurring in your control arm, the people that got the meningitis vaccine that confers no protection against coronavirus, mm. and a paucity of infections in the intervention group. 
Of course, no one knows what they've got. And when you can do that, you can show statistically that the vaccine must therefore be conferring protection. And you do this across the full age spectrum of people to represent the population you intend to vaccinate. And in this way, you can check for safety, but critically, you can also check for efficacy. And that's what they're doing. This is a silly silly question, Chris, but why did they not vaccinate some people and just not vaccinate a control group? Why did they use the meningitis? Ah, well, you need to do this in order to be unbiased because if people have not, they're just a control group, if they're, if they're not receiving any kind of jab, they might change their behaviour and behave in a different way compared to people who have had the vaccine for real, who might place themselves right. at higher exposure risk or lower exposure risk. Who knows? This way, everyone is treated identically and they're a fair comparison. This was going swimmingly. Uh, the numbers are good. And, um, and actually, I helped a friend of mine recruit a lot of people to get into this trial. And in fact, one of the other GPs that my wife works with, uh, her her partner has has signed up he doesn't know what he's had now unfortunately a few days ago uh, the headlines go around this trial is being halted and the reason it's been halted we are told is because there has been a case of transverse myelitis in one of the recipients the details are a bit woolly at the moment so we only know that there is a case of transverse myelitis and for cautionary reasons the trial has been temporarily suspended while this is investigated. Transverse myelitis. Transverse, yeah. myelitis. Transverse myelitis is an inflammatory condition of the spinal cord. It is an immune attack on the outer coat of nerve fibres, the myelin layer around nerve fibres in the central nervous system, and it has the effect of stopping or arresting the propagation of nerve signals up and down the spinal cord, so it causes sensory and motor deficits. The thing is, this is not just linked to vaccination. There will be many people around the world right now who are having a case of transverse myelitis. This happens just by chance to some people all through the year. So it may well be that a person who has had this vaccine was going to get transverse myelitis anyway, and the two are not connected. On the other hand, they might be because vaccines provoke an immune response. And in some people, there may well be onward domino effects within the immune system. And this can culminate in off target effects. And that's why it needs investigating, because we're in a position where this thing will get scaled up and potentially administered to millions. And when you go into a population at the scale of millions, if you've got a side effect happening at the level of one in 10,000 or something, obviously you can see you'd get a lot of side effects. So it's very important to understand what the side effect profile is and and therefore reassure yourselves that actually this was a one-off, it was nothing to do with the vaccine, or if it is something to do with the vaccine, try to understand why that's happened. And because you don't want to expose anyone to an unsafe situation that's why it gets paused but this is not the first time this has happened it happens quite frequently and we shouldn't be too perturbed in fact we should be reassured because if these sorts of things are being picked up and monitored it actually shows us that the proper channels the proper processes are being followed this is not a rush job how do they ascertain whether this transverse myelitis can be attributed to the vaccine Uh, There are a number of things you can do. Obviously, you can never know 100%, but you could, say, look at whether or not the person really had the vaccine. They may be in the control arm. We don't know. You can also look at their family history, other immune factors. Is this person prone to getting autoimmune conditions? 
can we detect any other viruses? There are certain viruses that we know are linked to these sorts of things happening. Is the person suffering with one of those sorts of infections? Have they had a history of having done so recently? These are the sorts of questions that will be asked, as well as looking at the timeline. When was the intervention with the vaccine? When did this come on? Because things are usually connected in space and time. And if they can show that sort of relationship within the bounds that we expect for this condition, it raises your index of suspicion. They, t- they may be linked. On the other hand, it may be possible to dismiss this out of hand and say, no, we, we are comfortable that this is either so idiosyncratic in this case, it's not going to be a problem for many people, or it's just not connected, or it is connected, and then we have to find out why. There are 38 vaccines, I think, in clinical trials on human beings now. Do you, is, are we focusing on the University of Oxford trial because it looks the most promising, AstraZeneca, all the rest of it, or are the other ones just as likely to be successful? Well, I, I spoke actually to a gentleman from India who's an expert in this space yesterday. We were on a radio programme together and he said 46 different vaccines around the world. Some people are saying 23. There are hundreds of projects ongoing. But one person I also spoke to yesterday, who's an immunologist at Cambridge University, she said to me, um, well, one way of looking at this is that the success rate in the pharmaceutical sector is about one in 10. So pharmaceutical companies usually expect to fail 90% of the time, not because they're no good at what they do. They're very good at what they do, which is why they succeed 10% of the time. It's just really hard what they're trying to do. And so with the number of projects we've got running, we can expect we'll probably see three or four vaccine candidates will make it through the trial process and will potentially be available for us to use. The leading contenders, which are furthest down that path with the best track record, are the Oxford vaccine, and a couple of other ones, including one other from the UK, which is a completely new technology, uh, and also a rival similar sort of product which is being developed um, in the US. A question from a listener says, Chris, if a safe but ineffective vaccine is deployed, is there a risk that this will compromise subsequent vaccines? Well, this is one reason why people are concerned about what has happened with AstraZeneca. Uh, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, because there is this concept of vaccine hesitancy. There will be uncertainty in the population about a vaccine full stop. In some sectors, that will be quite hostile uh, objection. There will also be more concern if people think it's been rushed through without proper attention to detail and safety. So that could produce hesitancy. There's also the risk that if it doesn't work, then people will just go, well, that's it. Um, they won't go for any vaccine after that because they'll say, well, you know, you're turning people who are healthy people into potentially less healthy people if we get this wrong. So it's absolutely critical we get it right. We will know, though, by the time we get to the end of the track, whether these things work. There's, there's, no, there's no way we're going to make a safe but non-effective vaccine because the researchers have designed this into their trial to probe the efficacy of these vaccines. That's what a phase three trial does. You're actually looking for the clinical effect as well as obviously monitoring for safety all the way through. So they'll be asking hard questions and checking the performance of the vaccine. What they might not be able to tell us, and this is the open question, is what about long-term immunity? Because as we've discussed here on your programme many times, Kim, what, what we don't know, because we have no time machine, we can only progress at the rate that time ticks. We don't know what the long-term consequence of either vaccination 
or natural infection with the coronavirus is. You're certainly immune in the short term, having having either caught it or probably having had one of these vaccines. We know it makes you resistant to severe disease anyway. But the rather worrying data which is now emerging in recent weeks, one paper from Hong Kong, another from America that I've seen just in the last couple of weeks, is of individuals with proven cases of reinfection three or so months after primary infection and having recovered and become immune. This suggests that uh, the immunity in at least a proportion of the population, but we don't know what proportion yet, might be quite short-lived and that will have implications for a vaccine, obviously. Certainly it would. What Possibly Boris Johnson's Project Moonshot is evidence of lack of confidence in the efficacy of a vaccine. You've hit the nail on the head and I said almost the same thing uh, actually on a television programme earlier today. Uh, why would you uh, speculate in the billions of, of pounds worth of spend if you were confident that you're going to have a vaccine? And, and the timeline is also is quite... It? The moonshot... Yes. I, the other interesting thing is, well, why is he called it a moonshot? You've got President Trump has got yeah. his a warp speed for a vaccine and Boris is going for a moonshot with his testing. I think they're trying to capture the scale. You know, the it certainly is stupendously expensive, all this, and, and sp- so is the space race. But no, Project Moonshot, uh, as was outlined at the Downing Street press conference I, I was listening to just a couple of days ago, is a very ambitious plan to use new technology, some of which hasn't even been invented yet, to do very rapid testing at huge scale. At the moment, they're turning around 150, 170,000 tests per day. This will be escalated by October to half a million tests per day in the UK. And by next year, they're talking about potentially doing multi-million scale daily tests at a humongous rate of spend and to use near near patient testing. So rather than you send a sample away and 24, 48 hours later you get a result back, this would be a result within 20 to 90 minutes, with fair wind behind you and a lot of optimism. And the idea is that you could use this to do minute-by-minute minute control of what people do and where they go. So pe- people could make a more informed choice more promptly about their infectivity status, and this may help to rein things in better. I, I suspect, as you've just speculated, they've got spooked about the vaccine. We have known about the risks of smoking and COVID, obviously, because it leads to lung complications. But it seems that there is quite a clear relationship between vaping and COVID-19, yeah? Yes, there was a paper that was published. It's an observational study. So one has to be cautious about this because when you do an observational study, all you're doing is taking whatever comes in the door and recording the data and looking for trends. You're not intervening in some way. So there are constraints of this. But what this paper showed is, as we knew, smoking gives you about double the risk of of catching and becoming severely unwell with coronavirus over what would be your normal risk for your age and, and sex and so on. But then when you extract from these people who use nicotine products, the people who vape, that number may be as high as fivefold higher. The question is, why is that? Now, we know that inhaling these products does cause injury to the airways. It does cause irritation. It does upregulate, push up the level of ACE2, which is the thing that the virus grabs hold of in your airways, and that's how it gets in. So that could be part of it. But an intriguing hypothesis put forward by the people who wrote that paper, they said, well, think about what vapors do, 
A, they do sometimes share their vaping equipment with other people, but that it involves an enormous amount of hand-to-mouth contact. So you touch your vaping instrument, having touched lots of other surfaces, and then you put it in your mouth. And it may be that, that it's not that the vape is doing this, it's probably contributing, but it may be the other behaviours that go with it, the socialised, let's all go and vape together. Then you touch things and then touch the vape and transfer virus to your mouth. So there's a range of factors that are probably at play here. What is this emerging theory, Chris, called the, I don't know how you even say it, Brady-Kinnon hypothesis? This relates to the cytokine storm uh, that we've talked previously. I wonder whether it could explain the so-called long tail of COVID as well. What is it? Well, this is actually a very good piece of research, which is out in the journal eLife from July by Michael Garvin, who's a researcher, he and his colleagues, they're at Oak Ridge in America. And they gained access to a lot of the samples that were processed right at the beginning of the epidemic, as it was then, now pandemic, in Wuhan. And they got the samples from those patients And they looked at the pattern of genes which were being expressed in those samples. And it's an informative way to approach it because certain diseases will cause certain genes to be turned on and other genes to be turned off. And if you look at the constellation of gene changes, you can learn about mechanisms of disease. You can find out why certain things might be happening, which was their rationale for doing this. And some very interesting trends emerged. Because what they found is that there's very strong engagement of a system in the body called the bradykinin system. Bradykinin is part of a process that regulates blood pressure and inflammation. And there are two key processes that go on. uh, An enzyme called ACE, which is angiotensin-converting enzyme, and this, what this does is it decreases the amount of bradykinin and increases blood pressure. And this is counterbalanced by ACE2, our old friend that coronavirus grabs hold of to get into cells. But ACE2 increases bradykinin signaling and also produces some other signals as well. Now, coronaviruses, when they get in, push up the level of ACE2 in not just your lungs, but other tissues as well. There's something about the the behaviour of the virus. It triggers more ACE2. If you've got more ACE2 you get more bradykinin. And bradykinin is very pro-inflammatory. It opens up blood vessels. It makes them leaky. And when they leak, other proteins can come out of the blood and then congeal in the space around the blood vessel. And there's one particular molecule called hyaluronic acid, which also gets increased in this inflammatory milieu. And that behaves like like a hydrogel. It's effectively making jelly in your airways. So they think you can tie many of the different observations about what COVID does together if you engage or invoke this molecule bradykinin. You get the lability of blood pressure, you get the airways clogging up and people not being able to breathe properly, you get the coagulation of blood under the low oxygen, low flow conditions, and you get this this very difficult to control um, blood dynamics which would go along with the, the changes to the ACE and ACE2 balance that would normally be in tight regulation in the body. So it's an intriguing hypothesis and it's also thrown up some possible drug treatments because there are ways we can use drugs to intervene in this to to rebalance the seesaw of of angiotensin-converting enzyme and and ACE2. So that may be an intriguing area to follow. I was just thinking about the, uh, the unknown length of immunity that 
might be conferred from either contracting the coronavirus or a vaccination should one emerge, which is a depressing thought um, because that means no herd immunity either. Um, what, what do you think the prospects are? What's the long picture at this point? Well, uh, we've speculated here on your programme before about this and really the feeling remains the same, which is there is another common human coronavirus which infects our cells in a very similar way to the new coronavirus. That one causes common cold-type symptoms. It's much less aggressive, but it's a useful proxy marker. And if you ask, how long do I have immunity to that if I catch it? The answer is months to years and short numbers of years. So using that as the proxy unfortunately it looks like we're not going to get long-term immunity at least in a proportion of people to either natural infection or to a vaccine and so that's why I think people are beginning to think well what's our plan b and they're beginning to think about other means of control. Good to talk to you Chris and there will be more to come as the weeks and months grind on. Thank you Chris Smith, virologist. Thanks Kim. From the UK.